0: Thanks for tuning in to the Seattle Limudcast. I'm Tamar Libicki. In today's episode, I interview Limud Seattle 2019 presenter, Alicia Joe Rabins. She discusses Girls in Trouble, a curriculum which encourages participants to make their own midrashim based on the stories of biblical women. Alicia Joe sees midrash as an enduring Jewish art form.
1: It's not just some modern idea, but that's actually a very traditional Jewish way of interacting with the text is to kind of write a bridge between our own lives and the text.
0: So first off, could you tell us about your Girls in Trouble curriculum and sort of the history behind it, when when it started, how it evolved? Sure. Um, Girls in Trouble is a
1: musical midrash project, so it's kind of a musical Torah commentary project about stories of women in the Torah. And so I write a song about... Each woman usually in her own voice. And over the past 10 years, I've released three albums of these songs and done a bunch of international touring within and beyond Jewish spaces. And they grew out of my master's thesis at JTS, the Jewish Theological Seminary, in Jewish women's and gender studies. And so After a while of performing these songs, educators started asking me if there was a way to bring them into the classroom or a way to look at the text that I was referring to in the songs or arguing against in the songs. And so I thought about it for a while, and then I applied for a grant from the Covenant Foundation to create a curriculum around the songs. And thankfully, I'm very grateful that they gave it to me and supported the creation of this curriculum. So the curriculum is basically a series of standalone study guides. So there's one for each song. You can make any kind of series out of them, or you can use them one by one, um, or just a, a single one. And they're meant for either self-study or small groups, or you could use it in a classroom. And they're largely for teens and adults, but some of the units could be used with younger learners. But a lot of times I'm intentionally writing about the more adult stories from the Torah um, about women. And so some of the stories themselves are not really appropriate for kids. And so they're, they're, they come as downloadable PDFs on the Girls in Trouble website. Um, And so they're usually like a 20 or 25 page PDF and it comes with the song MP3 and it comes with a PowerPoint um, as well to help with teaching. And some of them have visual art. They all have creative prompts also so that anyone who's reading it or studying it can make their own commentary at the end of the unit.
0: So I wanted to ask you about the word trouble in Girls in Trouble. So could you explain why you chose that word?
1: Yes, I chose that word because, well, to, to back up a little bit, I I grew up in a non-observant Jewish family and in a very Christian area, a suburb of Baltimore. And so I didn't really have a sense of like a Jewish approach to, to text. I mean, I did have a bat mitzvah, but that was pretty much it. So I always imagined, well, the Torah is this holy book, and the way people talk about holiness, I'm sure it's just like a lot of boring people doing the right thing. And then when I actually started studying it in college, I was so delighted to find that it was really a collection of stories about people's complicated lives, which were as complicated as my own life, much more often. And so I I was so relieved that the stories in the Torah kind of reflected the complexity of just getting through the day and having family relationships and romantic relationships and figuring out, you know, what is the right thing to do in any given moment and then doing it or not doing it. So... I call it Girls in Trouble because when I was writing the songs about them, I really was often trying to write about a moment of difficulty or challenge in the character's life because I felt like that made the difficulty and challenges that I felt in my life and saw in the world around me feel not like some kind of modern alienating problem, but just something that was like human and, and normal. And I really appreciated that, that contextualization.
0: You know, you just spoke about discovering all the stories in the Torah and how complex they were. But yet there's like levels and levels of more complexity that have been added um, by the rabbis and others throughout the centuries uh, called Midrash. So I was wondering if you could talk about your discovery of Midrash and maybe give a definition and then talk about ways that Midrash has morphed in modern times.
1: Yeah. Well, so Mitrash, it comes from the root word to seek, to kind of t- dig, to search. And um, and it's really um, like a I see it as an indigenous Jewish art form, actually, literary form of taking the original text and then digging into it with side stories or different versions of the stories or answering gaps in the original story or filling in parts of the story that may not have been explicitly told in the original story. I mean, if you're into fanfic, it's kind of like an ancient version of that. I mean, I would actually say my introduction to Midrash was in college when I studied James Joyce's Ulysses, which is only Jewish and that the main character is uh, half-Jewish, Leopold Bloom, but it's it's a retelling of the Odyssey in early 20th century Dublin, which was Joyce's hometown. And you know, the entire epic of the Odyssey is put into one day of this guy wandering around in Dublin. And I, I really loved that. I loved how it took um, this, you know, larger than life ancient myth and kind of transposed it onto everyday life when he's having these problems, like wondering if his wife is being unfaithful and going to the butcher to buy some meat. And so all these huge things that Odysseus is dealing with in the Odyssey, Leopold Bloom is dealing with on a kind of modern human scale. And I really fell in love with that concept. And so when I was introduced to it in Judaism, it doubly resonated and I've always been a writer. And so I really loved the idea that, well, first of all, that we get to to rewrite our sacred text, but also that it's not just some modern idea, but that's actually a very traditional Jewish way of interacting with the text is to kind of write a bridge between our own lives and the text. You know, in classical midrash is always written, you know, these little kind of short snippets that got passed on over time. And then contemporary Midrash is, there's no official definition, which is great because it means whatever you want to be Midrash can be, I think. <laughs> so there's people who do dance interpretations and visual arts interpretation and songs like mine. And I see them all as a form of what in Jewish tradition is called the oral Torah, Torah Shiva Alpeh, which is this living, ever-changing art form that is between the kind of unchanging ancient Torah text and our always changing actual experience of life. So there, it's a it's a bit of a bridge or, or a membrane in between that connects it and makes kind of makes it certain that it, it's always able to be relevant. The Torah Torah stories are always able to be relevant even as time goes on and our lives change.
0: So when I was reading the curriculum, I thought it was really cool. One thing you said about helping the students make their own midrash is looking for points in the text that don't quite add up. So I just wanted to read one of the lines from it. You said, have students identify every problem, difficulty, or moment of confusion they could find in the text as if they were on a scavenger hunt. So (laughs) I really like the way you put that. And I felt like that analogy that you used the scavenger hunt really conveyed the sense of joy or even the sense of fun that Torah study can have with it. But I think reflecting on what you just said about the role of Midrash to balance our current cultural experience with the ancient texts that we hold dear, yeah, that's another way of, of thinking about finding the problems, like what are the problems that we see from our standpoint? So I was wondering, with this curriculum, have you ever taught it yourself? And do you try to convey the emotion that one can get from Torah study and struggling with the text?
1: Yes. Basically, the the point of the curriculum is to try to enable people to teach or learn about the songs and the stories without me physically being there, (laughs) because I just can't travel as much as I like to. So it kind of grows out of actually my own teaching around these songs for years. And that's the hope is that it will be in the box way for people to understand the text and the song and my take on it and have their own creative experience without me being in the room. Yes, it definitely does grow out of my own teaching. And, you know, when I'm teaching these texts, I try to kind of mimic the experience of writing the songs actually for myself, which is, um, my experience of writing the songs is I look for a place in the text in the story that that I can really relate to on an emotional level or that I can imagine relating to or that I can see in the world around me. It doesn't have to be literally something from my life, but something that feels relatable. And because it's ancient myth, it's, it's huge usually in the Torah. I mean, it's like this huge dramatic thing of somebody like leaving their homeland and walking for days to go to a new place. And maybe for me, it was like moving across the country from, you know, from New York City to Portland, Oregon. But just these kind of, you know, burning issues of our day and of our personal days, even if they're not necessarily like a tremendous trauma, sometimes they are, but sometimes just the simple stuff that we kind of deal with and struggle with every day is reflected, again, often magnified in these stories. And so I do try to encourage that way of, looking at it for my students when I'm teaching and participants and look for personal connections. And so each of the units actually also starts with a prompt question that I suggest, which is different for each unit, where I try to distill what I think of as a central question, a central experience in the biblical text and invite people to share. So, you know, in my song about, for example, um, Tamar, (laughs) since your name is Tamar, um, so in my song about Tamar taking matters into her own hands when her ex-father-in-law is not really treating her as he's supposed to. So she has to kind of make things happen for herself. I can't remember if this is literally the question that I suggested in the Tamar unit, but I often will ask something like, you know, is there a time that that you had to go out and make something happen for yourself that it wasn't being handed to you and you really wanted or needed it and you just made it happen even if it was in a little bit of a sort of untraditional (laughs) way or you had to be creative about that. You know, again, it's sort of back to the James Joyce uh, Ulysses thing of taking these huge myths, it sounds so dramatic, and then looking at, but like, how does it actually reflect what I'm going through? And vice versa, like, where can I find a reflection of what I'm going through in these ancient texts that can kind of keep me company on the path?
0: So I picked out the Miriam song and Miriam curriculum. And so I was thinking, before we start on the next section if we could just listen to that song so people will be familiar with it. So here goes. Well, my
2: mother named me bitter Although as a child I was so kind didn't. In the reeds to watch over my brother But still my name was bitter Bitter the taste of the sea Bitter the cries of the horses Drowning behind us
0: Banished.
2: Seven days in the desert alone, I just started walking, I knew there was nothing to say. The scorpions and the spiders crawled up to me and stopped in my shade. Together in silence we watched as the sun crossed the sky. If your skin Should turn to snow Wouldn't you Have to go And if your God Should turn from you Wouldn't you Turn to Still I don't regret I don't regret an hour of the week that I lived all alone at the top of the mountain. Though no voice came down from heaven, and I never saw words written. I did see the birds of prey pick all the carcasses clean If anybody had asked me I might not have chosen to go But everyone knows sometimes you don't have a choice and if your father spit in your face, wouldn't you want to leave that place? And if your skin should turn to snow, wouldn't you have to go? And if your God should turn
0: So to give a little more context, I was wondering, because the section of the Torah that the song is inspired by is kind of long, I was wondering if you could maybe give a summary of it and then maybe pull out a a couple quotes or if you want me to read a couple sections that are the sections that you pull from. Sure. Yeah. So so this actually happens after the Exodus.
1: So in the chronology of the Torah, it's after the whole Passover story, but it's very much related because the in the Passover story, Miriam is such a central player. She's, you know, watching over Moses and the baby Moses, her her younger brother in the river, kind of keeping him safe and then she's part of the actual crossing of the sea and she leads the women in song after crossing the sea so she's this leader that's just in the Torah there are also a number of rabbinic legends and midrashim about other ways that she plays important roles and then this kind of crazy thing happens while they're wandering the desert which is that there's three siblings there's Moses Aaron and Miriam and so Moses is the leader um, who's closest to God and Miriam and Aaron are also leaders and at a certain point they sort of start to think that there, there needs to be a little bit of intervention in terms of Moses's leadership that maybe it's not totally clear what it is, but maybe something about his wife or maybe something about him just needing support or maybe something about, you know, Miriam and Aaron also wanting more responsibility and more direct contact with God. So essentially, Miriam and Aaron go to, to God and say, you know, do you only speak with Moses? What about us? You know, like, can't we have some more power in this situation? Um, and they, they sort of complain about Moses a little bit, and or it's one way of looking at it. And basically, what happens next is pretty shocking to me, which is that God strikes Miriam with uh, this version of leprosy, this biblical kind of spiritual illness that manifests in the skin. This is not really a physical illness, but it does manifest physically. And it's this sort of shameful, you get kind of exiled from the people and you have to go and, and be away from the tribe. And so... You know, one shocking thing is that that happens. The next shocking thing is that Aaron, who was speaking with Miriam, does not have any leprosy or consequence. Uh, one one nice thing is that Moses actually begs God to heal Miriam. And what God says is, well, if her father spit in her face, wouldn't she have to bear her shame um, for uh, a number of days? And so God actually sends Miriam outside the camp to be sort of in qu- quarantine essentially spiritually for for 7 days and then she can come back in. So I just think that like in terms of the leadership role that she's had and how much of her life she's given to to caring for her community it's a pretty shocking story and it's not a story which I think reflects very well on God. And the truth is that things like that happen in life. Things are not always fair. And so one way of you know looking at it is that God is not, you know, necessarily always a reliable force of sort of fairness and goodness. And sometimes we are go from being on the inside of a community to suddenly finding ourselves on the outside of a community in a much less dramatic way usually than Miriam did, but you can even just look at um, you know, if you think about, you know, middle school or something. There's so much just human jockeying for who's in and who's out and we all experience both. And so I wanted to really look at Miriam's time in the desert that week and think about what it would have felt like and think about whether maybe there's a wisdom that she could have learned out there, just like Moses learned his own kind of you know wisdom up on the mountain receiving the Torah. Maybe there was something that Miriam could receive in the desert sent out by God instead of being met by God. And there's a, a human wisdom that's kind of beyond this idea of right and wrong and fairness and punishment. So I wanted to really investigate that with yeah. this
0: song. And the song is called Snow, Scorpions, and Spiders. So you actually pointed out one of the things that really stood out to me in the song. There were two lines of the week that I lived all alone at the top of the mountain. And I thought that was very cool because it evokes Moshe going to the top of the mountain for 40 days. But then they're both alone in a way, but Moshe's with God alone, and she's alone all by herself. And I was wondering... Did you find a Midrash that said she went to a top of the mountain? Or is that something that occurred to you in your own thought? And what power does that have juxtaposing those two scenes?
1: Yeah, I'm guilty of just making that up. (laughs) Yeah, I try not to, like, specifically contradict anything in the original story. But I do give myself what I see as kind of Midrashic liberty to add some details. So, yeah, there's nothing about her being on a mountain But she is sent out into the desert. Yeah, I really loved the parallelism of thinking about Moses leaving the community to ascend Mount Sinai and be alone with God and receive this love letter from God to the Jewish people that is the Torah and then bring it back. And it's such an opposite uh, motion here of Moses' sister being stricken with this physical malady and and then sent away not out of holiness but out of needing to be cleansed which just has all these kind of implications of of shame and I mean I love that also the people did wait for her so the Torah says the people waited for her and they didn't move on until she came back and so that's that's kind of like a lovely note at the end to a kind of dramatic story I think but you know I also thought about Buddhism and other kinds of wisdom I think the Torah kind of wisdom is very relational and there's a lot of like rules and do this and do that and what I think of as a more Buddhist loosely like I'm no expert in, in Buddhism but I was really interested in like what if what if Moses was receiving this very theistic set of rules and laws and more than that but what if Miriam at the same time was having a meditation retreat and observing the cycles of nature? And just watching animals die and other animals um, who are scavengers, you know, use their bodies to create more life. And that maybe there's just this cycle that's beyond right and wrong that we're just in as living beings. And yeah, maybe that's kind of wisdom as well.
0: And I think, kind of related to that, another thing that I really liked was the way you evoked the desert, the um, stanza that really stood out to me was the scorpions and the spiders crawled up to me and stopped in my shade. Together in silence we watched as the sun crossed the sky. So everything about that just made me imagine a desert scene. And it made me think that the desert itself, I think, plays a big role in Midrash in the way that the rabbis sort of conceptualize the Jews' journey there's this idea that the Jews had to go to somewhere that was empty and silent and um, almost desolate in order to be able to change their culture and to be able to receive the Torah and really embrace it and have that more space, you know? So I guess I was wondering if you thought about the concept of desert and how it's viewed by the rabbis and how it played in the same way for Miriam or played in a different way? You know, I wasn't
1: specifically thinking about that, but I think that those ideas are definitely like also kind of swirling around my mind when I think about the desert. I was also thinking on a much more personal level of a night I spent alone in the desert when I was 21 or 22 and studying in Jerusalem, and we had a like a vacation, you know, a break for a few days. And I decided to take a sleeping bag and just, I was just curious (laughs) about what it would be like to sleep in the desert. And I, I brought like my violin and water bottle and some snacks and my sleeping bag and I didn't have a tent or anything. And I kind of took the bus down there and I walked into like a, it was like it was a nature preserve in the desert and you were supposed to leave. I just didn't leave and spent the night there. And in the middle of the night I woke up and it was this kind of moonlit night. And there was this giant spider next to me <laughs> night. Basically I was like, well I'm just going to have to like ask the spider to respect my space and I'll respect its space and and I actually got it but I drew this I drew a circle in the sand around my sleeping bag to kind of like protect me and then I went back to sleep and in the morning everything was fine um so that's actually in my mind as I was writing this song I was thinking a lot about about that because even though it was only one night it was it was a really amazing experience to just be unprotected in the desert for 24 hours and I think that the metaphorical attributes of the desert are they're real and they're physical when you're there so I think. That's kind of my own version of what you were saying, but I definitely agree with what you were saying.
0: Actually, the scorpions and spiders, another thing that was called to mind for me was the story of Yosef being in the pit. And it was interesting because that's another form of, it wasn't exactly exile, but he was separated from the group. And that kickstarted the trip of the Jews to Egypt. And this Miriam story kind of bookends they're like we're really out of Egypt now someone else has to go to the scorpions and the spiders <laughs> I love that I love <laughs> that yeah
1: and there's like amazing Midrashima about squir- about spiders and scorpions actually separately like I ended up going down a little bit of like a insect rabbit hole <laughs> insect midrash rabbit hole at some point while I was writing the curriculum and just there's all these you know stories about spiders like protecting people by like, I forget if it was David who was hiding Somebody was being pursued and hid in a cave and a spider protected him by uh, weaving a a web over the opening. So when they came to look for him, they said, well, he can't be in here because there's a web here. So obviously no one just came in. So this sense of of spiders as a benevolent insect, (laughs) which I really love.
0: So one more thing that I thought of when I was listening to the song, I thought, well, if this was a bit of Torah and some rabbis were reading the words to this song, I feel like, as you said, the scavenger hunt, one thing they would say is, you have two lines, still I don't regret a minute and I don't regret an hour. I feel like it's like classical rabbinical style to be like, well, if you don't regret it a minute, of course you don't regret an hour. Why would you include the line, I don't regret an hour? <laughs> but yeah, what's, what's your answer? Why, why do you say a minute and then an hour? Well, I'd be just as
1: interested in other people's answers as my own. I feel like once an artist puts something out there, it's really like belongs to everyone else to decide, um, you know, what they want to make of it. So if it weren't a podcast, I'd probably be like, well, what do you think? But since it's a podcast, I'll just cut to the chase and say I think while I was writing the song, I was just in that state of like writing where I don't necessarily have like a, a literal meaning for each thing, although it's always just one step away. But I think what I was getting at is the sense of that week as a meditation ret- a silent meditation retreat for her, which I've done a couple times. It's not actually my native <laughs> spiritual language to be silent for a week, but um, it's been a very interesting experience. And you know, thinking about how time changes, that a minute becomes an hour, becomes a day, and sometimes a minute is longer than an hour. Sometimes an hour goes faster than a minute. <laughs> and so I think that was my way of saying every moment of that difficult week, was it teaching for me like in Miriam's voice and that in the song, she's sort of expressing anger, essentially at God for sending her out. And it would be one thing to say, like, I'm angry. And this was like this terrible experience, but I wanted to say I'm angry because this was unjust, but look, I took this thing that happened to me and I turned it into wisdom. And I'm going to bring that back to the people now. And I mean, that felt like an empowering way to see her character who is I think such an empowered character and this thing happening to her in this story feels just so wrong. Like I said before, with everything that she's sort of sacrificed and and worked so hard to support the people. And so I wanted to give her that sense of like, I made this into a meaningful experience and I learned things here that I never could have learned when I was in my cozy relationship with the community and with God. And so I don't regret a second of it, essentially.
0: So the end part of your curriculum is asking the students to create their own type of midrash. And it's very open. So I thought that was very cool that they could create a dance, write a letter in the persona of Miriam or a different character, write their own stories. You even said some students who are more musical may bring their instruments to class and compose something. So I was wondering when you have taught this, or I don't know if you've taught based on different songs, could you recall maybe a few midrashim that students have created that really surprised you or delighted you?
1: Well, actually, the the most surprising and amazing Um, Midrashin that I think I've seen were not in a teaching session of mine. It was a Christian seminary professor in Illinois who asked permission for me to use this in a program for incarcerated men. And they were in an academic program at his institution. So he would go into the institution and he taught this unit and they're actually on the Girls in Trouble website, which is girlsintroublemusic.com. There's a gallery of biblical interpretations that a little bit tucked away, the link at the bottom of the page, but it's there and you can search for gallery, you'll find it. And they're up there actually. Um, So the the artistic interpretations that the, you know, adult male participants or incarcerated people uh, created who are not Jewish were mind blowing. You know, some of them are these sort of really personal poems in Miriam's voice, but clearly had relevance to their lives. And then a number of them said, this is about, you know, this is clearly about the whole, right? Like solitary and what it feels like to have everybody watch you as you're being walked off to solitary confinement in prison. And that was just something I never, you know, I was thinking of these sort of like emotional analogs. And I think that's really important, but to have this story speak to um, this, you know, physical reality of these men's lives um, and have them, you know, reflect on it through art or writing. I was like very, very moved and and humbled by that. And then in the times that I physically taught it, I don't always include that because sometimes I'm giving more of, of a lecture. But it's so beautiful what people end up creating and sharing. Like sometimes it's a physical movement that just depicts that sense of like looking as you grow farther from people. I mean, I just remember the like specific moments of often adult students, sharing interpretations that I would not have ever quite thought of as well. And I just also want to say that they can be in a classroom, which could be, you know, teens or adults, but they also are meant to also be self-study guides if, if somebody just wants to have an experience on their own or with a friend. And so, for example, the the creative prompts at the end is something that you could just do. And then everybody's invited to upload them to that gallery of biblical women that's on the website. So one of the things I want to do is is really empower people to create their own commentary, their own midrash in whatever way. And, you know, it it might be completely different from mine. I hope it is. Because I think that bringing attention to these understudied stories, especially of biblical women, not not necessarily the famous triumphant ones that we like to tell, but the, the more challenging, complicated ones, I think that that's a really meaningful part of what we can do right now with Torah study to kind of balance you know an emphasis on men's stories for thousands of years and also to benefit from from the complexity of the stories like I was saying before and to to have this sense of kind of solace and companionship from what the characters are going through
0: that's beautiful well thank you so much for coming on yeah thanks for having me (laughs) The Seattle Mooncast was recorded at Full Track Productions in Seattle, Washington. It was produced by Dave Dintenfass and Tamar Libicki, with original music by Sergi Feldman. Thanks again to our guest, Alicia Joe Rabins. Check out the website for Girls in Trouble at www.girlsintroublemusic.com. Alicia Joe also has a new movie, A Koddish for Bernie Madoff in submission to film festivals in 2021 and planned to be released in 2022.